you turn in Holy Scripture tonight to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we will read the whole chapter. The text is verses 26 and 27. I preached this in Edgerton this morning because this is our family visitation text for this spring. So now I bring this word to you tonight. May Jehovah bless the reading of his word to our hearts. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greedy. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to, giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways." Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls." But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, 
but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And so far do we read God's holy and inspired word. The text is the last two verses of the chapter, verses 26 and 27. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In James chapter 1, verse 22... James calls us to be not only hearers of the word, but also doers. Now James is writing to the Jewish church that had been spread apart due to persecution. That's James 1 verse 1. We read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. The 12 tribes there refers to Israel, specifically to Jewish believers here. And they had been spread abroad due to persecution. We know that from other passages in Scripture, such as Acts 11, verses 19 and 20, that talks about this spreading out of the Jews from Jerusalem due to fierce persecution after Stephen's stoning. Now James calls this Jewish church... Not to be hearers only of the word, but doers. There was a danger that these Jewish converts live only as hearers of the word. They had been brought up in the tradition, tradition of the Pharisees, really. They've been taught works righteousness and that you can earn salvation by obedience to the law. Well, after these Jews were converted and brought to belief in Jesus, there was a tendency among some of them to go to the opposite extreme of works righteousness. And that is to a a denial of the importance of the law. James 2 implies that some did indeed deny the importance of the law and deny even the necessity of doing good works. That's what James 2 is all about. So there were some to whom James was writing that claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ, but they opposed the doing of good works. They opposed that doing of good works thinking that it would take away from that doctrine of justification by faith alone. So James says in verse 22, chapter 1, He's going to correct them. He says, be ye not hearers only, but also doers. And he adds in verse 25, he says, continue in the law of liberty. So the idea is do good works in thankfulness for Christ. Do good works to thank him 
what James says to the Jewish church long ago applies to us today. Right here. The church today too, and in the past history, the church is often plagued by those who live in in wickedness. Continuing on in sin, but they justify their conduct on the grounds that they believe in Jesus. We even go to church. James says to us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. In verses 26 and 27, James explains then what doers of the word do. He explains that only those who are doers of the word have pure religion. He gives three examples of what a doers, what a doer of the word does. First, verse 26, he talks about a doer of the word bridles his tongue. Verse 27, a doer of the word visits the fatherless and widows in their affliction. In the end, he keeps himself unspotted from the world. James teaches that only those who do those things have a pure religion. Those who do not do those things, he says, have a religion that's vain. Verse 26. Those who do not do those things have a religion that's false. It's not real. It's not genuine. We will see why that is today. May we be moved through the word that we hear tonight to have and maintain a pure religion. May God strengthen us through the word to visit the fatherless and widows, keep ourselves unspotted from the world, and to bridle our tongues. Let's consider the text under the theme, pure religion. Pure religion. First, what it is. Second, how it is manifested. And third, the explanations. Pure religion, what it is, how it is manifested, and the explanations. And we begin with what it is. James talks about religion in the text. He's talking about the Christian religion. There are many religions Christian religion, the Jewish religion, the Hindu religion, the Muslim religion, the Buddhist religion, and many other pagan religions. Each of these religions has its own god or gods, its own worship practices, its own set of beliefs. James is talking about the Christian religion, though, here. He, the church to whom he was writing, we, the church today, we hold to the Christian religion. We acknowledge Jehovah as the one God. Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. And the Bible as the sole rule of faith and life. The Christian religion. That word religion in the text, it means, the basic meaning of the term, is to fear and worship. The basic idea is fear and worship. In all religions, other than the Christian religion, the people fear their God in the sense that they are terrified of their God. They tremble before their God in terror. 
They have a God that they must somehow appease so that he doesn't, or the gods don't eventually destroy them. In the Christian religion, that fear is different. Christians fear God in the sense that they stand in loving awe of him. They stand in loving adoration of him. They certainly tremble over their sins. They've committed against this most holy God, but they fear God in the sense that they stand in loving awe of him who has sent his only begotten son to take away those sins. Now that fear, that loving awe of God results in worship. So that's why the basic meaning of the term religion is fear and worship. The term religion, in this text, it's used in scripture to refer especially to outward acts of worship. Acts 26 verse 5 says, Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And according to the context, by religion, that word there in Acts 26 verse 5, Paul is referring to the ceremonies that he followed as a Jew. He's referring to all the outward expressions of worship that he did. As a Jew. And that's the same word that's used in our text, James 1, verse 27. It's referring to the outward acts of worship, such as coming here, listening to the word preached, praying, singing, partaking of the Lord's Supper, all those things. So the word religion in the text is referring to acts of worship that come forth. From a heart that fears God. These acts of worship that come forth from a heart that stands in loving awe of Him. In the text, James makes a contrast between religion that is vain and religion that is pure and undefiled. He makes a contrast. In verse 26, at the very end of that verse, he talks about a religion that is vain. And the word vain there means that which is lacking in truth. That which is lacking in truth and worthless. Start with that idea, it's it's lacking in truth. That means it's it's false. It's a religion that's false. It may appear outwardly to be a true worship of God, but it's not. It's only a show. It consists only of words and actions, and it lacks the true essence of religion. It lacks that true fear within, that true loving awe of God. It lacks that. And this religion that is... Vain, it means it's, it's false. It also means it's then worthless. It doesn't give glory to God. It gives no praise to Him. It, it's not worth anything. God is not pleased with that kind of religion. We know that. 
And one who's walking in that way of false worship, that one feels far from God. He's walking in sin, so he, he's truly miserable in that way. He experiences misery. James speaks of a religion here that is vain at the end of verse 26. And then, the beginning of verse 27, talks about a religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father. Pure and undefiled, those two terms mean essentially the same thing. Something that is pure is undefiled. Pure and undefiled means not to be dirty with sin, but clean morally. That religion is pure and undefiled before God means that religion is not dirtied with something that would make it false and worthless. It's not dirtied with something that would make it false and worthless, but instead it is true. And it's pleasing to God. That's pure and undefiled worship. It's true worship that's pleasing to him. Now that addition of the word father in verse 27, it's important and and points us further to what true religion is. Verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Doesn't just say God, it adds the name Father there and does so for a reason. Pure religion, pure, true religion is worshiping God because He's our Father for Jesus' sake. It's worshiping God, it's standing in loving awe of Him because He's our Father who has adopted us for Christ's sake. We're his children for whom he cares. That's what's being brought across to us there in verse 27. Pure, true religion. Standing in loving awe of God, our Father. Now James indicates that there can be those in the church on this earth whose religion is vain. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. James says some seem to be religious. That means that they perform the outward acts of worship. They may be attend church, they sing, they pray. They're maybe even involved in some things at church and they send their children to the Christian school. They seem to be those who truly worship God with a heart that fears Him and lovingly adores Him. Yet their religion is vain. It's not true, real worship. Those outward acts that they do, it's not true, real worship. It's It's worthless. It doesn't glorify God. They're just going through the motions. James says that they deceive their own heart. These ones who seem to be religious, they deceive their own heart. That means they lie to themselves. 
They say that theirs is a pure and undefiled religion, but it's not. They do not have a, a religion that they, they don't truly worship God. They don't truly worship God with hearts that really adore Him and fear Him. They just go through the motions. They tell themselves, no, I have a real religion. My religion's pure and undefiled. I do. I, I worship God. But they're lying to themselves. That's what James means by religion being vain. Some have tricked themselves into thinking it's true religion, but it's not. What about us? What, what about our religion? Is our religion vain? Or is our religion pure and undefiled? Let's examine ourselves as we continue on with this sermon. Pure religion. So religion that's true. That manifests itself in three activities according to the text. First, well... Let's look at the verse first. first. Verse 26. James says, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. That's said in a negative way, but the idea is this. One who has true religion bridles his tongue. That first. Verse 27 adds this, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. The second second activity that shows pure religion. And last, to keep himself unspotted from the world. And that's the third activity. The idea is each of those activities show that one has Pure, true religion. They truly worship God. They truly fear and lovingly adore Him. Those activities are the inevitable fruits of true religion. They're the proof of true religion. One's religion is true who does those three activities. There are more activities that one who has true religion does, but those three, those three are certainly ones that someone who has true religion does. Let's look at each of them. First, in verse 26, James teaches that one who bridles not his tongue has vain religion. One who bridles not his tongue has vain religion. In chapter 3, James speaks, it's James 3, James speaks of the great evil that the tongue can do. Many of us have memorized those verses in our youth. Consider verses 5 and 6 a moment. We read there, even so, this is chapter 3, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body 
and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. The idea there is a tongue. The tongue is a little part of the body, a little member that can do so much damage. James compares the tongue to a fire. You think about how you start, maybe start a fire in a campground and you don't attend to that fire properly. It spreads, spreads to a stick nearby, eventually goes to a nearby tree and that can start a forest fire. So that it spreads from, fire spreads from tree to tree and soon thousands of trees are burned down. Maybe even homes nearby burned down. Maybe even people have died because of that fire. It destroys, it damages. Well, just like a little fire can cause so much damage, so can the little tongue cause so much damage and hurt. One hurtful word said to someone can destroy that person. One word of gossip, one time where you were backbiting, can ruin someone's reputation and there ruin their life, make it miserable. This happened in the church to which James wrote, and, and sadly, this happens in the church today too. It's so easy to gossip about others. It's so easy to see someone, especially in a small community, so easy to see someone think, oh, and, and right away those words come, oh, they're so dot, dot, dot. Maybe someone is thought to have done something wrong, and you don't even know all the facts. Someone doesn't even know the, the whole truth about it, but they go around and they talk about it on the phone with somebody, and then maybe even bring it to social media or to some forum, and they talk all about it. Doesn't do any good for the one who has sinned, doesn't help them at all. All it does is damage that sinner further. Or maybe you even know someone's done something wrong, you know the facts. But you just go around and talk about it. You don't talk to that sinner. You don't try to really help them. You just talk about it. Damages the sinner. Doesn't help them. Kids, too. Kids, listen. You, you too, with, with one word, one mean word, you can hurt someone. Maybe even hurt them so they, they remember that word for the rest of their life. So hard to forget. We can hurt with words, damage so easily. Now in chapter 1, verse 26, James talks about one who does not bridle the tongue. One who does not bridle the tongue, that means they don't control it. To bridle the tongue means you do control it. Think about a, a horse. The horse that has a bit and bridle is under the control of the rider. The unbridled horse, though, the unbridled horse gallops and runs around wild, out of control, wherever that horse wants to go. Now, there are people whose tongues are unbridled. They gossip and slander. They hurt with their words. They really abuse with their words, their tongues. Their tongues are as uncontrolled as a wild horse. And the idea of that term, bridleth not, that word, those two words in verse 26. That verb, bridleth, is in, is in the present, present tense in the original language. And that means that it's indicating continuous action. 
So it's not talking about someone who's, who does that and, and repents, but it's talking about one who's going on and on in this sin, and, and they're not sorry, they don't care, and they're continuing to use their tongue in a wrong way to hurt. When one does not bridle the tongue but continues in this sin, he shows that he has vain religion. He shows that his religion is not true. He may go to church. He may be a defender of the faith. He may even be an office bearer. But his religion is vain. It's not true. It's worthless. It's not pleasing to God. He doesn't truly worship God. He doesn't have a heart that lovingly stands in awe of God. That's one who does not bridle the tongue. The implication of verse 26 is that one who does bridle the tongue shows that they do have a true religion. So we must bridle the tongue. Pure religion is it manifests itself in controlling the tongue. So do that. Do that this week. This week it very it's almost certain that at some point someone else's name will get brought up in a as as you're standing there in a group. Someone else's name will get brought up, and maybe it will be good things, but maybe it won't be good things. Maybe they'll start to speak of someone in a way that's not good. It becomes gossip. If someone has done wrong, there will be a temptation for you to add gas to the fire and talk about all the things you know about it. May we not do that. If others are speaking poorly of another... Stop the conversation right then and right there. Do it humbly, but stop the conversation. And kids, you do that too. Kids, you control your tongues this week. How you talk to others, how you talk about them. High school students, grade school students, control your tongues. And do that. Do that in thankfulness for Christ. God, our Father, sent him for us to save us. Second, according to verse 27, one shows that he has true religion by visiting the fatherless and widow. By visiting the fatherless and widow and their afflictions, it says. The fatherless and widow and their afflictions represent a class of people that need lots of help, but they have little or nothing to pay in return. They need lots of help, but they have little or nothing to pay back in return. The fatherless are, the or- are orphans. The widows are those whose husbands have died, whose husband died. And there were many widows and orphans in the early church to which James wrote. And they, they were in affliction, he says. In affliction. That word affliction means literally to be pressed or squeezed. And the idea is that Life for these orphans and widows, life for them was, their path through life was made small. They were pressed or squeezed so that it was hard to get through life. Why? Well, in those days, in those days, especially for widows and orphans in the world, they were often forced to fend for themselves 
physically. They did not have a husband or a father to provide for them. They had to provide for themselves. That was hard. And in addition, the very fact that they were widows and orphans, that shows their suffering, their afflictions. They, they felt lonely. Now, it wasn't just, though, the widows and orphans in the world that faced afflictions, but this was something that was happening in the church also. Jesus even said to the Pharisees, leaders of the Jews, he said to them in Matthew 23, verse 14, that they were not caring for the widows. So widows and orphans, they were those who needed much help, but there was little or nothing that they could give in return. Now the fatherless and widows, they they do exist in the church today too. They are supported financially today much more than they were in the past, but they still face especially that affliction of loneliness. Think of someone who doesn't have a father or someone who doesn't have a husband anymore. Loneliness. But in the text, that term fatherless and widows, it really represents all our neighbors who have great need but have little or nothing to pay us back with. You can think of many that would apply in that category. For instance, maybe there's an elderly couple here that faces lots of affliction. Maybe it's even hard to get to worship services sometime or to come to other church events and to do certain things around their house. They would fall into this category of the fatherless and widow here. They need much help. Maybe there's not much with which they can pay back or you don't feel that way, at least about helping them. You can almost think, what's in it for me sometimes? Or maybe there's one in the church that's fallen into into sin. Maybe it was long ago in the past. Maybe it was recently. And because of that sin, maybe they they feel a little bit separated, a little bit isolated from the rest of of, of the church. And the tendency even of others can be, especially when it's gross sin, the tendency can be to back away from them. And if you visit them yourself and you try to help them in fighting their sin and to turn, there can be this thought with, well, there's not really much in this for me. This is going to be a long haul of me helping them, but not much in it for me. So those who've sinned, those who've fallen into terrible sin would fall into this category too of the fatherless and widows. Or kids, maybe, maybe there's another student at school that doesn't have many friends. They have a hard time even socializing with others maybe. They're maybe not so good at sports. Maybe their family doesn't have much, much money, many toys to play with if you'd go over there. Befriending them, maybe you'd think, would bring little to you. That's how it would seem, at least. Well, those two would fall into the category, the fatherless and widows, those ones who have few friends. They face, they they need help. To visit the fatherless and widow, what does that mean? The text talks about visiting, uses that word. Visit the fatherless and widow. To visit them means that you go see them and you help them. You help them. You you go see the, the elderly couple and you 
help them. You care for them. You, you speak to them. Maybe bring the word to them. That would be a great idea. Bring comforting passages of scripture and the promises of God's word that he will never leave them or forsake them. Read passages maybe even about heaven and the hope we have for the future. Talk about Jesus Christ, one who took away those sins that can rise up against someone in their old age especially. You go to them, you speak with them, and you check in on them regularly. You see that word visit in the text, it's, a, it's again in the present tense, and the idea is you don't just go to them once, but you keep going, you keep checking in on them, you keep helping them. Visiting the fatherless and widow. To visit the fatherless and widow means that you check in on the ones in the church that have maybe committed sin, that maybe feel a little bit isolated because of that. And that is a consequence of their sin, but you still try to help them. And if they're, if they're still struggling with that sin, you, you go to them and you talk about how oh, you're a sinner too. And, and let's go to the cross together and look for forgiveness. And let's turn together. Let's, let's, let's help each other serve the Lord. And you walk with them. And you keep checking in on them. That's visiting the fatherless and widow. And for you kids, to visit the fatherless and widow means that you go with your parents. You go with your parents to help those in the church who are in need. And it means that you befriend those at school who maybe have a difficult time finding friends. You say, hey, come along with us. Come along. And then the next time you say, come along again. You keep trying. You keep helping visit the fatherless and widow. One shows true religion doing that. To visit the fatherless and widow often requires lots of time, lots of energy, lots of commitment. You may have to prepare for that meeting. So that if you're going to go and visit the elderly couple that, that needs help, you read a passage before you go and you think about what you're going to say to them and how you can help them. That takes time. And then the actual visit takes time and it takes energy. Now many find themselves too busy with other things to bother with all that. After all, they have their family children, friends to help, hobbies, basketball games, hunting, fishing. You've got all these things to do. So they neglect the fatherless and widow. And they don't go to visit them. They don't care for them. They don't go to check in on them. Well, the teaching of the text is that those who do not visit the fatherless and widow, those who don't seek to help them, those who continue in that way, they have a vain religion. Their religion is not true. They do not truly worship God and do not truly adore him. Only those that visit the fatherless and widow in affliction have a true religion. Truly worship God and adore him. So visit the fatherless and widow. Take time to think about sometimes, maybe with your spouse, you think about who could use help in the congregation. Who, who needs much help? And then go to them. Take some time to do that. Third, 
James teaches that one shows he has pure religion by keeping himself unspotted from the world. That's verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Here the term world refers to wicked men and the things of the earth that they corrupt. That's also how the word is used in James 4, verse 4. A verse we'll read in in a few moments. That's the idea of the term world, often in Scripture, referring to wicked men and the things of the earth they corrupt. It refers to men who are trampling underfoot the commandments of God, maybe walking in in drunkenness, walking in sexual sin, walking in, in other sins. That's how they live. The world refers to the people and the earthly things they corrupt too. It refers to their movies. The movies that are wicked. The movies that take God's name in vain. And that make it seem funny to dishonor those who are in authority. Movies that show forth fornication and make it look like such a a glamorous thing. The worldview portrayed in these movies of the world is certainly not that God would, that man exists to glorify God, but the worldview portrayed in the movies of the world is that man exists to glorify himself. That's what's most important, that man have earthly success. He make money, he gets things, he has great friends, he has this, that, and the other thing, this earth. The world refers to the movies of the world to the songs of the world that again have that same wrong worldview. That's what the world refers to here. Now to keep yourself unspotted from the world means that you're not becoming stained with the wickedness of the world, but instead you're living in spiritual separation from the world and its sin. The implied picture of that phrase, keep oneself unspotted from the world, the implied picture there is of a man that has white robes on. And he's walking down a path that's muddy, dirty. And he's trying to keep his robes from becoming spotted. Dirty. That's the picture. And understand, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world then means that we seek to keep ourselves from being stained with the world's sins. We're a righteous people in Christ. We have the right robes of salvation. We have the Holy Spirit within us. To keep ourselves unspotted from the world means we live spiritually separate. We don't join with the world and their wickedness. We refuse to go to their parties. We refuse to walk in their ways. We do not take in their sin-filled movies and songs. We don't. We refuse it. We say, I'm not going to do it. And if we do fall in weakness, we have a sinful nature. If we do fall in weakness, we confess that sin, look to Christ, and we turn, truly turning from it. One shows that he has pure religion, true religion, 
when he keeps himself unspotted from the world. One who doesn't, one who joins with the world in their wickedness and filth, that one shows they do not have a true religion. That's the teaching of the text. That one shows he doesn't really fear and worship God. He acts like he does, but he doesn't. One shows he has pure religion by keeping himself unspotted from the world. That man shows he truly fears and adores God. Keep yourselves unspotted from the world. Young people, keep yourselves unspotted from the world. Kids, keep yourselves unspotted from the world. How is this to be explained? Why are these three activities that we talked about, why are they the proof of pure or true religion? Why is that? If we were going to make our own list of activities that show pure, true religion tonight, before we heard this text, we might have mentioned many other things and not these things. We might say a person's attendance at a true church shows that they have true religion. So many today say that they are Christians, but they they don't go to church. Or they, they, they don't go to a true church, a church that really preaches the scriptures. So we might say, well, one who has pure, true religion, they go to a church. That's true. Our list might include whether someone is willing to serve on committees at church, whether someone's a good husband or a, or a good wife or a, a good parent that sends their child to the Christian school. Now all those things that were talked about, those are important and they are part of true religion, no doubt. But they're not the proof of true religion. One might be going to a true church of Jesus Christ and sending his children to the Christian school, but have a religion that is vain. The sure proof of whether one's religion is pure and undefiled is the bridling of the tongue, caring for the needy, and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. That's the teaching of Scripture. That's the text. Now, why? Why are these three activities mentioned as the proof of, tr- of pure, true religion? To understand that, remember that pure religion is a matter of the heart. True worship comes from a heart that lovingly adores God, that stands in loving awe of Him. Also, one who has true religion seeks to follow the law of liberty that's mentioned in verse 25. That law of liberty is summarized this way. Love God, love the neighbor. The three activities in verses 26 and 27 so clearly show that one loves God and loves the neighbor. And that's why those are the three activities mentioned in the text. Think about this. Only one that only one that truly loves and adores God in his heart will keep himself unspotted from the world. 
James 4, verse 4, says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, the opposite of that is one who loves, the, loves God. That one is a, a true friend of God. Or what, sorry, that, that means that only one who hates the world turns from it. Only that one really loves God. That's James 4, verse 4, too. Only true love of God will result in keeping yourself unspotted from the world. One who doesn't truly love God will go into the world's ways. They will. Your relation to the world, think about this, your relation to the world is the ultimate test of your love for God. Also, one that truly loves God and the neighbor will control his tongue for the welfare of the neighbor and will visit him in his afflictions. One that doesn't really love God and love the neighbor, he won't do those things. He won't have time for it. And he will use his tongue how he pleases. Your relation to the neighbor is a true test of your love for God. It's a true test of if you stand in loving awe of him. And that's why these activities are mentioned in the text. These three activities are listed because these are activities that especially show if you love God or not. If you fear him or not. Now how can we have a, a pure and how can we have and maintain a pure religion? We've heard these three activities tonight that show forth a true religion. We've thought about them. How can we have and maintain a pure religion? Well, kids, you know, you already know, it's not in our own strength. Absolutely not in our own strength. We cannot and will not do it on our own. We each have a sinful nature. That sinful nature was passed on to us from Adam. Left to myself, and you left to yourselves, we'd be dead in sin. Continuing in unbelief and sin. So left to ourselves, we would not have a heart that fears God, that stands in loving awe of Him. We wouldn't. We wouldn't even believe the Scriptures. We would reject His Word. So we would not stand in loving awe of Him. And we would not then bridle our tongues if we thought we would gain some popularity or even be funny by talking about something that someone else has done and making them look bad. We're going to do that. Whatever's convenient for me, I'm going to do with my tongue. Left to myself, I am not going to visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction. I'm going to think about what's in it for me, and I'm not going to do it. I don't have time for that. I have so many other things I can do. Left to myself, I am not going to stay unspotted from the world. We know that. I'm going to join with them. I'm going to do those things that my sinful flesh wants to do. We can only have and maintain a pure religion as those that are begotten again by God. Verse 18, chapter 1. A beautiful verse that applies to us believers. That's to whom James is writing here. 
verse 18 says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is speaking to believers here, and we are believers. How is that? How is it that I believe in Jesus for all of my salvation? Only because I've been begotten by God. I've been born again. The Holy Spirit has implanted spiritual life in me who's dead by nature. The Holy Spirit has implanted life in me and he renews me day by day through the word. I'm begotten by the word. Day by day renewed through that word. We've been begotten again. Don't miss this. We've been begotten again based on Jesus' work at the cross. It goes back to Christ. Without his work of paying for our sins, we would be guilty sinners before God. And guilty sinners have to be left in the prison to sin and death. Left in their sins. Left in unbelief. Left in that, in that use of, wrong use of the tongue. Left in, in worldly living. Left in that. But Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for those sins. Took them all away. And based on that, We have the right to be let out of the prison to sin and death. We have the right to have the Holy Spirit living within us. And he does. Praise God for sending Christ. It's based on his work that we have been begotten again and given spiritual life. We have and we maintain pure religion only by God's power. He strengthens us to believe the word and stand in loving awe of him even tonight as we hear about how he's our father for Christ's sake. He's adopted us for Christ's sake. He works in us through the word to show love for him by bridling our tongues, by visiting those in affliction, by keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. And when we do fall, he turns us, brings us to confess, look to Christ and put it away. He strengthens us to do these activities through the word. And he's doing that even now. We've grown to see more clearly tonight how good our God is to us. He's our father. And we go forward now seeking to live according to his word. To use our tongues rightly more and more. To visit those in need more and more. To keep away from the world more and more. He is a a great God. And he's working powerfully through the word tonight. We thank him for that. Now, go forward and do those activities we've spoken of. Do those activities by his power. Worship him. Control your tongues. Visit the fatherless and widow. And keep unspotted from the world. All in gratitude to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, Lord, may we have and maintain pure true religion. Strengthen us, Lord, through the word we have just heard to be those who are bridling our tongues, visiting those in need, and keeping ourselves spiritually separate from the world and its wickedness. Lord, we need thee. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name alone we pray. Amen.